0: Welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten, and I'm going to be joined today by Professor Andrew Eisen from the Division of Neurology, University of British Columbia, Vancouver. And we're going to be talking about his recent review in the JNMP, looking at cortical influences in motor neuron disease, and specifically in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I wondered if we could start off by talking about the theory of corticofugal primacy in ALS.
1: Yes, so, so the postulates that um, ALS starts in the brain and then secondarily involves bulbar and spinal anterior horn cells through anterograde mechanisms, which we don't fully understand. Now, the idea is not new. Um, actually, it was Charcot's original idea back in 1865, but the story seemed to then go to sleep until... The early nineties and then Arthur Hudson, who is in, was in, in London, Ontario, who actually sadly died of ALS a couple of years ago. rethought this through a bit based on the fact that it was only all the neurons were innervated through the brain and were accepting the ones from the bladder wall and the ocular um, muscles were different. So he actually tried to do some pathology and he failed in it. So he said, well, I'm wrong about this. And then I rethought this through again in the 90s, gone on with it since then. And the most recent group has been Matthew Conan's group in Sydney, using um, uh, mainly TMS and a lovely technique called threshold tracking. So the concept has gained recognition. It's not universally agreed upon but I think it has gained a lot more recognition than it did in prior years.
0: And Of course central to this theory is this idea that you um, talk about in your review, the neuronal system. Could you tell the listeners and myself a little bit more about this particular part of the cortex?
1: neuronal fibres are a functional component of the pyramidal tract itself containing corticobulbar and corticospinal axons. And these are large, rapidly conducting axons. They arise somatotopically in the precentral cortex in lamina 5, and as I said, they're very large. That they are monosynaptic, that they connect directly with um, bulbar and spinal motor neurons was discovered about 60 years ago but i think it was porter and lemon that coined the term corticomotor neuronal and corticomotor neuronal system for these specific connections and roger who's a co-author on this paper is a leading world authority on the corticomotor neuronal and its connections he's done amazing work on it we we actually first met in the 90s in a neuromuscular meeting in Kyoto, when I first put forward what I then called the corticomotor neuronal hypothesis of ALS, which is the centigrade um, idea, um, and because of its connections with highly complex functions, which is really limited to primates and particularly humans.
0: Okay, So um, this theory of the cortical primacy is suggesting that the origins of ALS lie in these particular neurons and then sort of travel down to other neurons. Is that the sort of basis of the hypothesis?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes.
0: So your paper outlines particular clinical syndromes which support this theory, so the ways in which that um, ALS can present itself in the clinic. Um, and the particular phenotypes. And one of particular interest to myself and perhaps to some of our listeners is the idea of frontotemporal dementia and, of course, the continuum that lies with ALS. Can you tell us a bit more about how this sort of provides support for this notion of cortical primacy?
1: Yes. So, um, at at first sight, you'd, you'd think they've got nothing to do with each other. Actually, for years, people thought patients with ALS don't get dementia, although... If you look at the literature carefully, are well-documented cases going way back to uh, the 1900s, Sharka was actually adamant that ALS patients do not get demented, so he, he was wrong wrong about that. But the I think the, the motor system is best regarded as a sort of motor network that's quite expensive, and it extends way beyond the corticulose mm-hmm. neurons in the primary motor cortex, and it continues anatomically and functionally linked to premotor areas, premotor regions, um, and then goes further into the frontal lobes and then eventually into language-related relevant presylvian cortex way beyond the primary motor cortex. And in a rather lovely paper in 2011, Thomas Beck, who's done a lot of work with frontal dementia and ALS, extended an idea, a principle that Hebb's had developed many years before, and he sort of conceptualized that cells that fire together and are wired together are much more prone and eventually will die together. So the networks involved in frontotemporal dementia and ALS are very closely linked anatomically and functionally in that way. So it's not surprising that they're, so they're wired together and fire together, and it's not surprising that they do eventually die together. There's also now, you know, important shared genetics in both syndromes, particularly with the C9 or 72 um, gene, and there's been lots written about that in, in recent times. In the majority of cases of frontotemporal dementia, there is rapidly progressive behavioral and cognitive symptoms. Sometimes there's also psychotic features, and then these are followed within a year or two of the occurrence of classic um, ALS, MND, weakness, fasciculation, brisk reflexes, and so on. But with a predominant bulbar distribution, the involvement in fact of upper and particularly lower limbs is less pronounced and in many cases remain fully mobile, so here is the idea of a sort of rostral um, caudal spread um, of the disease from the brain going further down eventually to arms and then the legs.
0: And is this particular, are there any sort of ALS clinical syndromes which are not fully explained by the involvement of the cerebral cortex? So any that sort of fall outside or, or stump the idea of cortical primacy?
1: Yeah, well I think that's a very key question. So, there is a rare variety of of ALS, progressive muscular atrophy, PMA, that's um, characterized solely by lower motor neuron dysfunction. But actually, many of these cases subsequently do develop um, upper motor neuron signs, and then they're considered a lower motor neuron onset of ALS. So, as I said, it's such a rare a variety of ALS, about two point five to five percent of of all cases of adult onset motor neuron disease. Patients, even though clinically they may not have um, upper motor neuron signs, many do show pathologically show evidence of long trap pathology and have ubiquitated inclusions that are typical of, of ALS. And it's interesting on the side, most ALS SOD, superoxide D1 mutations, are very typical of, of non-hereditary ALS with upper and lower motor neuron signs. But there is one in particular, the A4V mutation, which is characterized by rapidly progressive, predominantly or maybe entirely lower motor neuron disease. So here you have a disease with a known gene with many different mutations of which at least one appears to mainly produce lower motor neuron features. And then, sort of separately, and we did some studies on this, and I know Matthew Kernan and and Steve Wupchik have as well, if you look at Kennedy's disease, so Kennedy's disease, spinal muscular muscular atrophy, is a pure lower motor neuron disease. It has nothing to do with with, with ALS, it's uh, got its own genetic problem, malformation. But they and us have done TMS studies in that and shown them to be normal and quite different from ALS. So here you have a model, if you like, of lower motor neuron disease that does not behave, uh, at least physiologically, the way ALS does. So although, um, you know, you're you're right that this particular uh, variety of ALS, Progressive Muscular Activity, You know it's difficult to see how the brain starts off and does that. Um, I don't have a clear answer for it but um, I think there is clear evidence, there is good evidence at least that even PMA has a lot of brain pathology.
0: And, I mean, you mentioned it it briefly just then about um, transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a sort of neurophysiological technique that can help provide sort of in vivo evidence for cortical primacy. I wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about that particular technique, really.
1: Well, yes. So, actually, over the last two decades, there have been a number of centers who have been interested in using um, transmanic stimulation in, in ALS. And um, there have been a, a number of, of methodologies that have been developed. Early on, they were pretty simple, just using what we call central conduction times, which isn't, isn't really terribly good. And then um, later, were measurements of the, what we call a central silent period, which was shown to be markedly reduced in ALS, and that indicates hyperexcitability. And then uh, paired pulse studies came along, and they, they showed excitability um, much more readily. And in fact, the Australian group have shown this uh, to be very early, in fact, before clinical signs developed, which has been very interesting. And then uh, we, well actually it was Kerry Mills in Oxford, and then we followed on a number of others, used a technique called peristimulus time histograms, which hasn't really fallen into refuel, but it's not used because it's a bit too complicated. And anyway, people don't use it anymore. But we've got some very interesting evidence, again, of cortical involvement and cortical origin of ALS using that technique. And then Weiss developed a method called triple stimulation, which um, again has shown this good evidence of cortical involvement in ALS. It's it's a rather, I think it's a rather painful method. So, uh, again, that's not used too much. But uh, Matthew Kern and his group developed something called threshold tracking using TMS. And that really is a wonderful methodology. Um, I think it's the best methodology we have now in looking at, at the brain in ALS. And they've done a lot of studies and um, I think shown very convincingly that um, there is a cortical origin of ALS using this um, technique of threshold tracking. It's really very exciting.
0: In your paper, you talk about the neural system and um, that it makes ALS, as you say, a human disorder. What, what is it specifically about that system that's particularly human?
1: So, the corticomotor system subserves um, very special functions, including adaptive complex motor behaviors that are really largely limited to to humans and non-human primates and for example fine manipulation that one has the ability to use your hands and fingers and being able to walk on on unsteady tricky terrain and activities such as skiing and so on which need a lot of finesse and then also, it's a little more difficult, but with, in terms of bulbar function, um, facial communication and expression um, in, in association with breathing, because the human respiratory system is incredibly complex in relation to uh, vocalization. So impairment of these functions, not all of them at the same time, but one or more, is a very early feature of patients with ALS, Um, if you ask ALS patients carefully, what, you know, if you say, the trouble is in the clinic, sometimes we just say, well, where did your weakness start? And they'll say, well, in the foot. But if you go a bit further and say, well, actually, what really was the very first thing? They'll tell you, well, you know, I was hiking up one of my favorite trails and I kept tripping. Or I've known excellent skiers who said for no reason they started to fall and they shouldn't fall because, you know, their balance was good and they're expert skiers. So there are things like that or inability to manipulate keys and things, not because of weakness, but because of corticomotor neuronal dysfunction. So also the the CM cells, as we've taught before, um, synapse monosynaptically, and they do so with all in humans with all motor neuron pools, excepting those of the external ocular muscles and the bladder wall, which are spared, or at least spared till very late in in ALS. And then another interesting feature is, I mean, a pathological hallmark of ALS is the um, cytoplasmic TDP43 positive inclusions. And it's interesting that it's the neurons that have these inclusions are confined to specific projection neurons, that many of which must be the CMM, CM corticomotor neuronal projections. So, you know, those things make it rather unique. And then on top of that, there isn't a one-to-one numeric relationship between the corticomotor neuronal cell and and spinal motor neurons. In fact, each um, CM innovates many make hundreds of anterior horn cells. And conversely, each anterior horn cell will receive input from many different corticomotor neurons. And this is a very special arrangement, and it allows for smooth and very finely controlled movement that humans have. An amazing fractionization of hand and versatility of movements. This allows you to play the violin, play the piano and this sort of thing, which is really rather unique, certainly lacking in in non-primates.
0: So you talk, I mean, with this in mind, and potentially a fairly controversial question I'm going to end the podcast on, but if it's a sort of system that's affected predominantly in humans, a sort of fairly complex and evolved in humans and non-human primates. How do you feel about the use of animal, particularly rodent models, for understanding the pathogenesis of ALS?
1: Yes, well, I mean, clearly, I mean, rodent models, animal models, have, have done a great deal to forward our understanding of motor neuron cell function and cell death and their interaction, say, with glial and supporting cells. But... In my view, the the absence of a sophisticated neural system in rodents and um, related functional cortical networks, I mean, they don't get frontotemporal dementia in non-primates, I think limits the value of animal models in, in, in the final end result. I don't think they're going to give us a fundamental answer to ALS. I think we really need to devote all our efforts or more of our efforts to the human disease, to humans that have it. And I think with increasing sophistication of imaging techniques and human neuroanatomical and neuropathological studies and the now exponential deciphering of the human genome and proteome, this should be possible. Hundreds of laboratories throughout the world doing animal work and ALS and I I certainly don't want to upset them, but, um, you know, I think there are two things that bother me. We've been doing animal models of ALS for many, many, for decades now. It hasn't got us any further. The other sad thing is that all the clinical trials of, well, hundreds of clinical trials now, of which sort of pan out in animals, then don't translate to humans. And there, has to, there are many reasons for that, but I think one of them is it's a different anatomy.
0: I think that sounds like the case in, in many sorts of particular models of disease, not just ALS potentially, that there are limitations.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's true, actually, true of Parkinson's and, and Alzheimer's. I mean, my view of these three neurodegenerations are that they are strictly human disorders. I don't believe there are any genuine natural animal models of these three conditions although I think there was one report of a of, well there was a report of a monkey which I'll accept developing Parkinson's so that's not a problem I accept but there'd be no natural models of rodents developing with these conditions so they all share that and um, so I think I'd like to see much more effort spent directly on the human disease and see where we go from there.
0: Absolutely, and, and your paper also outlines you know there, and you just mentioned then there's sort of increasing improvements in things like neuroimaging and the, our sort of neuropathological understanding of these particular illnesses grows by the day. Um, and as you said, the genetic causes and sort of whole genome sequencing and the advanced techniques that we are using, which does focus our efforts onto The human condition. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it'll be very long now before
1: we really have the full ALS genome deciphered and can compare it to non ALS genome. And, you know, I think that we have what now about 20, 30 genes or something that play a role or are relevant. There could be many more probably that are going to be relevant. I suspect there'll be many more.
0: Well, Professor Eisen, thank you so much for joining me on the JNMP podcast today and for speaking to me about your your review and and your work, over. Thank you. So that was Professor Andrew Eisen from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And he was talking about his recent review in the JNMP, looking at the cortical influences in ALS. And you can, of course, download this for free on jnmp.bmj.com. And we thank you all for listening.